Welcome to the Diversity and Inclusion On Air podcast. This podcast is a program of the Association of American Veterinary and Medical Colleges Diversity Matters Initiative. The podcast explores various issues related to diversity and inclusion in the veterinary profession and provides the AAVMC an opportunity to provide ongoing diversity programming to our member institutions, as well as all veterinary professionals. My name is Dr. Lisa Greenhill. I'm the Senior Director for Institutional Research and Diversity at the AABMC. I am really delighted to have three guests on today. We're finally, finally, this has been a hot weighted, we've been trying to do this show for quite some time, probably about four months now. I'm very excited to be able to bring a show today on rural practice and kind of what's going on in rural practice, what's the, what's kind of of what the needs are, where the future of it is going, all of those kinds of things. And I am delighted to welcome my guests, Drs. Andy Allen from Washington State University, Dr. Stacey Kenyon, a private practitioner from New York, correct? Yes. Yes. And Dr. Gil Patterson from Lincoln Memorial University. Hi, everyone. Hey there. Hello. Hi, great. So as is our custom on the show, I am going to invite each of my guests to tell us a little bit about themselves before we dive into our topic. So Andy, I'm going to ask you to go first. All right. So my name is Andy Allen. I work at Washington State University. I work through the field disease investigation unit here um, where we take students out during their fourth year to teach them how to investigate large animal or production medicine type problems out in the field. I also teach in uh, third year courses, so medicine courses in third year to veterinary students. Awesome. Welcome. Thanks. So Gil, tell us about yourself. Sure. So thanks for having me on. Uh, Dr. Gil Patterson here. I work at Lincoln Memorial University, the newest college of veterinary medicine here in the U.S. And I and the program manager of a research center here called the Center for Animal and Human Health in Appalachia, or CAHA, as the acronym goes, A-H-A. And so what we do is basically support the needs of rural veterinarians through research, education, community outreach, and really trying to focus on the real-world problems that rural veterinarians throughout this Appalachian region, which is you know, the region roughly of the Appalachian Mountains, uh, spanning across the eastern seaboard, really trying to translate real-world problems that rural vets are seeing into veterinary so that we can better train future grads to address those problems. Prior to coming here, I was a rural practitioner in frozen Minnesota, uh, food animal practice. also did some public health training at the um, University of Minnesota uh, before coming here two and a half years ago. So happy to be on. Thanks for having me. Sure, great. And Dr. Stacy. I am Dr. Stacy Kenyon. I am um, a private practitioner in a mixed animal practice in northern New York. We are in the foothills of the Adirondack Mountains in an area that's one of our largest industries is the dairy industry. We are a large practice. We have probably 16 veterinarians. We have four small animal hospitals and cover probably a 250-mile area of dairy clients, uh, equine, some small ruminant, and a few pig clients, not many. Wow, pigs too. Okay. All right. Well, thank you each of you for being on the show today. I'm really excited to have each of you here. So I am going to pitch this first question to you, Gil. Assuming that folks are completely new, we get a lot of pre-vet students who um, are interested in profession but don't know a lot about various parts of it. Suppose they're completely new to veterinary medicine. What is and what constitutes rural practice? Yeah, that's a great question. I guess I'll start by kind of being a little technical and then kind of go into sort of more of the aura of what it really entails. Um, I've worked a lot with some colleagues in the uh, AVMA office, specifically looking at veterinary economics. And to be technical in terms of when we break down the demographics of what what a rural practice is, well, first, we, we, we sort of, the demographics we use would be, we define an urban practice as service less than two mile radius. Suburban would be 2.1 to 9 miles. And then and a rural practice would be a practice that services an area greater than a nine-mile radius where the sort of home base might be. That said, you know, a lot of it is really being involved in a, a small community where um, everyone knows each other and there's 
know, agriculture very a lot of times is, is a central economic driver within the community. So you're really involved with everything from dogs and cats, personal pets, to livestock species, whether they be food animal or pleasure uh, horses or other hobby farms, things like that. So really a diverse array of, of all different species and people that are accustomed to a rural lifestyle not a lot of the you know, same amenities that one might expect in the big city. So that's a brief overview, but I'm sure my colleagues here have some other uh, thoughts they might like to add. Yes. Stacy, you mentioned, so Gil said anything over nine miles and you said that your practice <laughs> covered more than 200? Well, that's our the scope of our ambulatory okay. practice from end to end, pretty much. Um, I think Gil was very right on about the description of what how I would describe rural practice and it's small community. Um, you cover also not only a large area, but I think another unique aspect can be that you serve variety of socioeconomic and demographics um, within the client base as well. And I think. Maybe it's not so unique, but it certainly is reality for rural practitioners. Does everyone just call it rural practice or does it have maybe different names, kind of depending on what kind of animal you're working on? Is rural practice the same as production? I, <laughs> I guess I, I haven't tried to pin it down that, that closely, but I, I, we talk about rural mixed practice a lot or rural ag animal practice or rural equine practice. You know, where people are specializing more, it seems like, you know, we have, we, we can classify them different. I, I guess for rural practice, for me, they can mean all different things. I didn't know of those very specific uh, titles for that. But, you know, out West, we can go anywhere from, you know, you can be just on the outskirts of Seattle, uh, you know, in suburbia, but still doing rural practice because you're doing equine, you're doing some backyard cattle, sheep, goats. Or you can be in the middle of Montana where, you know, you, you'll cover a couple hundred miles in a day easily. So, you know, rural practice can, you know, be a lot of different things out here, I guess. So, yeah, sounds pretty diverse. So, so Stacy, what's a day like for you? So my career has largely been focused on mixed animal practice. Specifically, I've always done a mix of large animal and small animal. So a day typically for me is, Perhaps could be um, small animal surgery, seeing patients for wellness and sick appointments. A different day might be a large animal day in which I'm seeing horse clients. I'm out on the road in my truck and serving dairy clients. So nice variety. It's the appeal that brought me into this style of practice and one I've enjoyed my entire career. Um, I grew up on a dairy farm, so cattle were the reason I got into veterinary school um, or, and have always been a focus. At this point in my career, I mostly do small animal, but I still get out on the road a little bit. So it's probably a pretty typical variety of surgery, medicine, a lot of patient and client interaction all day long, whether out on the road or in the clinic. So very enjoyable mix. So you mentioned that you grew up on a farm, a dairy farm. One of my questions to, to, to each of you, and, and I'll kind of pitch it right back to you, Stacey, is how can we do a better job of kind of recruiting, you know, and retaining student interest in this particular practice area. I mean, you know, we only about 20% of our applicants at the time of application expressed an interest in rural practice. And is, is that enough? Do we need more? Mm -hmm. and, and how do we sustain that interest? Is it that we do really need to kind of focus on, you know, honing in on, on that particular 20% and, and trying mm -hmm. to keep them in the pipeline? I think that educating client, the students, sorry, would be helpful to get to help them know all the options that are out there. I, we entertain probably 20 to 25 externs throughout the year from various universities, both in the U.S. and we actually also have some international students. And what I find talking to veterinary students is more often than not, they're actually surprised at the level of practice that we are able to provide in a rural area. And so I think that's something that I would want to help students understand earlier in their uh, academic career that it can be a viable option to get to do high-level medicine and surgery, even though you we are in areas where referral hospitals may not be particularly close. But one upside, if you will, to that is that we become 
the practice that can provide some of those services. So we have, uh, I, I have colleagues who have become really very skilled at all levels of orthopedic surgery, soft tissue surgery, the Certainly the medicine side, we manage our own cases as far as some of the more involved endocrine and other type diseases, which when talking to some of my colleagues who are in urban and suburban areas, I have concluded that often they're compelled to refer these patients out for specialists to manage. And we get to handle a lot of more of that in-house, which is both challenging, but also rewarding as a practitioner. So I think it would be helpful to maybe get that message out to students a little bit sooner, just to keep it on their list of possibilities. You have to want to live the lifestyle of rural practice, though. When it comes right down to it, you need to want the small community. We are not close to any real large major cities. So depending on what social life someone's seeking, that's going to factor in. And also we have those individuals who have spouses or significant others in their life that also need to find employment if they're not also veterinarians. So that sometimes can present a challenge in rural areas. Gil, what is LMU doing to kind of address this issue of kind of retain, recruiting and retaining student interest. And then Alan, we'll, we'll, you can tag in as well. Yeah, I'd like to get to that and also sort of elaborate on some of the stuff we were just talking about here. Myself, you know, I was a kid, I was a suburban kid, never was really around livestock or big farms or anything growing up and really didn't get much exposure to that area of veterinary medicine until, well, really undergrad. I went to University of Vermont, which is a very rural state. They had a working student-led uh, dairy herd there, and I, I worked there throughout my college career and would see the vets come in and just got kind of really interested in, you know, the, the cases that would come up, but also, you know, there's obviously medicine and surgery that veterinarians participate in every day, but sort of some of the broader topics that I think can be really fascinating to a sort of a broader array of veterinary students, such as, you know, public health, zoonotic disease prevention, food safety, all this sort of stuff that I observed on the dairy farms, on the pig farms and, and beef farms that I worked on while I was in practice, you know, you're really on the forefront of, of um, preventing, you know, zoonotic disease outbreaks. You're a public health professional in, in, in terms of food safety and, and very critical in preserving the health of both the animals in the community as well as the, um, the people and the environment as well. So um, that's one thing that we've tried to stress here in our, our education here at LMU is early exposure to the large animal species, the food food producing species, such as you know cattle, goats, sheep, pigs, sort of spark that interest in, and really emphasizing that sort of one health concept of you know humans, animals, environment, all all of those um, you know ideas and health professionals need to come together for all you know to be able to improve the health of all those things. Uh, so really stressing that I think can help attract students from from backgrounds that might necessarily may, may have never really given a, a, a serious thought about where they, they would sort of want to end up as a veterinarian. But I think to, to summarize, I think early exposure is really, really helpful in the veterinary uh, education system to those, you know, both the large animal species, but also those broader concepts related to public health. And then just trying to sort of weed out those students that, that express interest and, and mentor them as best you can to point them in the best direction so they can get the best experiences and, and, um, and uh, interest and help develop that interest. Andy? I guess what attracted me, I was out in mixed large animal practice for four years before I came back to veterinary school. Um, I think it was just being a jack of all trades and doing fun things every day. You know, I was doing something different. You know, I also, you know, I, I noticed that when I was out on the road going farm to farm that I was always smiling. And when I was stuck in a in the exam room, I, I wasn't smiling as much. I still liked it. But I, just wasn't I, I think, you know, portraying that to the students, you know, is important. You know, what we do here to to try to do that, you know, I, I had a discussion with our admissions, the head of admissions here, and I was actually surprised. I thought she was going to say that she seeks out these students from these rural communities. We get a lot of students from Montana, Idaho, and Wyoming, and they usually end up uh, in eastern Washington, which are all the rural areas. And, and they usually end up being a, a big part of the students that go out and do rural practice. But she said she doesn't. She doesn't specifically seek those students out and she doesn't give them any leeway. And so, you know, they're, they have to be able to get over the bar that they set. But, 
you know, at least from my experience, those are a, a lot of the students that at least want to go back to rural mm-hmm. practice is the ones that come from ranches and, and dairies and farms. I, I guess our biggest struggle now is they all say they want to do it and then they get out and they interview and they can't get the pay that they need to to pay off their student loans. And so we have, you know, every year I have, and I, I have a lot of contact with the ag animal students. We have the students that say, I want to go back to my hometown or I want to go back near where I'm from in eastern Montana or Wyoming or wherever. And they go back and they interview and they cannot get the pay that they need to to pay off their mm-hmm. and you know amazingly high student loans. You know, they're they're getting into the two hundred thousands. And so a lot of these students are having to seek out other opportunities and then they they say they'll go back later. And I think a lot of them do, but after they've paid down some of their loans. And Mm so, you know, that yeah, we can attract them all we want, but getting them there, you know, is gonna require that they can pay off their loans. They're they're pretty smart. They understand that they can't. They they got to pay off their debts. So, sure. I don't know if I answered the question, but absolutely. And you've provided a great segue to the next topic, which is what are some of those challenges? So I've kind of heard maybe two. One being if if you're not really into living the rural life, then this mm-hmm. is probably not going to be a good fit. <laughs> but if you are, you still need enough money to live and you need enough money to service your debt. And those seem to be two pieces that are, are really important to kind of making this work, recruiting and retaining interest and, and the ability to kind of go into this particular practice area. Are there other challenges? I think that one of the things that you mentioned earlier, Stacey, was that, that students that come to work with you are shocked at the level of care, right? The high quality care that right. folks are able to provide. And I think that part of that too is that, you know, in terms of popular media and Animal Planet, you've got wonderful people doing wonderful things in all parts of the world, but it may give a different view that I I hear a lot of practitioners in the field may not be thrilled about in terms of the quality of practice. So yeah, so is that another challenge? I mean, clearly you're, you're providing folks an opportunity to see what they're, to see that it's not quite what they may have thought. I think that the one of the most important things that we probably all will agree on is that all new graduates need a high level of mentorship. I think there's a certain amount of confidence that a lot of new graduates don't have in their own abilities graduating with a DBM, that they really do have the skills that they can go into practice and apply and, and really be able to hold their own. Our practice being a bit larger and having been fortunately progressive in our attitude towards CE and so forth. I think we can be an example to the students that extern with us that you can go out into a small, smaller area, rural, but still have various levels of expertise within the veterinarians that you're working with to help continue to help hone your skills. And mentorship is a huge part of that. It's what every applicant always puts at the top of their list of what they're seeking often in their first job coming out of any veterinary school is mentorship. So I think that's something within the profession we have to be cognizant of and willing to offer to these new graduates. Another huge piece of challenge, in my opinion, for us rural practices is emergency work. And the fact that in rural communities, we typically are handling our own 24-7 emergency call, very traditional. We share that responsibility as a group of doctors, but we are definitely on call. And that has become a sometimes a tough selling point when new graduates especially can seek suburban or urban practice um, opportunities in which they can be guaranteed they will not have to do overnight on call. And in our emergency means you have, we have an answering service. You have, you're tied to your cell phone and you feel the calls that come in. You go in to meet the patient and take care of their needs. And you have access to a staff member on call with you, but it's, it's definitely impacts the lifestyle um, because that is its own, own commitment. And I would say probably, especially in small animal practice, um, that's probably where we lose out on quality candidates over, even over salary, to be honest. We can be competitive on salary, but the 
if a new graduate can pick a, between us and a job in which they will not have to do any overnight call or weekend work, unfortunately, unless they are really committed to being in a particular rural community, we're probably going to lose that candidate. And it's it's a reality. We're the big practice in the area, so we are we are here to serve our clients' needs and. We have no emergency clinics that we can send to that are close to an hour and a half away. So it's um, it's just a reality. And we believe it's part of our mission to serve our communities to provide that. But it does require having veterinarians willing to participate. Thanks. Andrea Gill, other challenges that you think are important for folks to to understand? Certainly, the, the I mean, the economics are a big, a big deal. Well, I would just add, you know, consciousness of maintaining that work-life balance. And we just talked about the the strain that, you know, on call overnights, emergency work and, you know, the 24-7 cell phone attached attached to your hip can, you know, it's easy to get sucked into that. So we, you know, I think the veterinary profession as a whole and and sort of all fields needs to be conscious of, you know, maintaining that work-life balance. But I think it's especially important in rural practice, as as was just described, that 24-7 sort of, you're always always need to be available or, or that sort of thing. So trying to work work that out and, and work that into your schedule, I think is hugely important to be able to sustain that rural practice lifestyle in the long term. So to each of you, what's what's the perk? What's the upside? What's What makes this like the best thing? <laughs> what drew you to it? We've heard a little bit about that, about each of your stories, but, but you know, what is the, what is the sweet spot about rural practice? Well, for me, I mean, just being able to work out outside a lot of the times, it wasn't great, you know, in, in January in Minnesota, you know, <laughs> summer sometimes, it, it's just great to kind of be outside. You get to drive around a lot, see a lot of beautiful areas, meet a lot of different interesting people. And you see a lot of just cases that you're not going to see in your everyday clinic. And you kind of got to be prepared to see whatever when you when you step out of your truck and just you, you meet a lot of really interesting people. Um and that, that was one thing I really enjoyed. And just, you know, the, the work ethic of, of farmers and producers to me was, was really inspiring and, you know, just re- really great people to be able to work with and, and to talk about their cases. And, you know, just like any dog or cat owner, they're just as invested in, in you know, the care and well-being of their animals. Um, so and that's, that's one thing I really enjoyed. I think the relationships are a huge part of the appeal for small town lifestyle and being part of the community, being able to interact with the community, even outside of our veterinary profession, but being regarded as, you know, a respected member of the community is is really nice. You know, being able to be active in local 4-H and FFA um, organizations to support young people even well before they are heading to college is very helpful um, and very rewarding. For me, I've only ever lived in rural areas. I've never had any interest in being anywhere near a city. So it was kind of the lifestyle that I wanted to maintain. But I, like the others have said too, it's really the variety of practice that rural practice can offer that I think makes it the most fun. Yeah, I, I would agree with both what, you know, what they both said. The people, the people that you meet out in rural practice are some of the nicest people you will ever meet. And, you know, you get invited in for lunch, you get invited for coffee, even beer sometimes, you know, so there, there's always, there's a, a much closer personal attachment than I ever felt that I got with small animal clients. Not that I didn't, you know, because I would always try to to uh, build those relationships as well. But once you're at somebody's house, when you're on their farm, when you're seeing what they do, it's different. It's a lot different. And and then also what they expressed about community. You definitely are part of the community and you're usually a valued part of the community. Hopefully you're a valued part of the community. Um, and so, yeah, it just, it's a, it's a different feel that you get. And but you have the hardships that, you know, that Stacy talked about of the being on call all the time. That It's really attractive to, to be able to send an animal to an emergency <laughs> clinic when, you know, versus, versus, you know, getting jerked out of bed at two in the morning to, to go do something that, that definitely, you know, can do that. But, you know, I would say that the personal relationships are, are definitely that. And, and I grew up as a James Harriet type wannabe. And that lifestyle is much more like that. So, yeah, you get to go do all sorts of fun stuff. 
Right. I might also just add just yeah. a lot of times with, you know, you're dealing with herds of animals and it's sort of a different approach. You know, yes, you're doing individual medicine, you know, for animals that are in dire need, but you're at the same time taking into account an entire herd of animals that's maybe destined in food chain or maybe their milk is or meat. So just that, again, I go back to that sort of broader focus on public health and food safety and that kind of thing. And for me, that, that, that was, that's a really sort of, um, rewarding experience to know that, you know, you're, you're on the forefront of making sure that these animals are healthy, that translate to safe food for my family as well as the rest of the community. Yeah, that's really important. So over the years, I mean, I think that, that the general public has, has long certainly associated, you know, the dog and cat part of, of veterinary medicine with practice, but, but certainly the history of the profession is, is more rooted in kind of this rural narrative, right? But a lot has changed. And so we've seen a lot of growth in cities, suburban sprawl. Um, we've also had a major gender shift in the last 30, 40 years of the profession. How if at all, have these changes, how do you think that these changes, I guess, and societal changes and, and changes specifically within the profession with respect to gender, how have they affected rural practice? Stacey, I'll go with you first. I guess I would say, I don't know that it's so much changed for my experience in rural practice so much for the gender question. It certainly has I think the the shift more to small animal has lessened the number of students in any given graduating veterinary class that appear to be seeking large animal veterinary positions. So um, I think if anything, we've seen it far more being a, a smaller pool of candidates who are seeking to work with food animal. And that is something we've had to contend with when we've had positions to fill for sure. Alan, any thoughts? And how you think things have changed over the years? I, I, I mean, there, there's definitely a, a, a bias amongst certain clients, you know, a, against women, you know, and I think that's changing. Hopefully it's changing, but I've heard clients and it, it's usually an older generation that is as like, you know, how could she do this type of work? But, <laughs> you know, it, so we definitely see it, and and I still see it occasionally. It, it, I think it's becoming much more rare, but I, I do think that's been an added challenge. You know, when we have eighty percent, you know, women in in veterinary school, and and a lot of them want to go out and do large animal. I think I think or rural practice, and so. I, I think things are changing, though, and, and it's getting better and better. But, you know, we've still got ways to go with that. It, there is also a challenge, but this is just not necessarily for uh, for women specifically, but for single people, you know, moving out to, and, and I'm talking rural, rural. You know, we, <laughs> we're talking eastern Montana and some places in Idaho and Wyoming, where a lot of our students come from, or a lot of our ag animal students come from. Um, you know, if they go back single, there's, you know, there's not a ton of people to, to pick from. You know? so, so I think there's a challenge there with that as well. And so, and, you know, they're so busy, they don't have a lot of time to date, they don't have a lot of time to do things. And then they go back, go back out to practice and yeah. they're busy again. So, you know, that's, that's a challenge. So. Sometimes Bring your partner with you. <laughs> right. Well, well, sometimes it's an upside, Alan, because I, when I first moved to this area, I was told by my colleagues that they asked if I was dating anyone. And I said, no, I wasn't. And they said, well, it's kind of big news when a single woman enters our council. <laughs> <That's laughs> not related to anybody here. <laughs> and I was like, Oh, well, um, I do have a few criteria, I think, but um, so it, it can be a good conversation starter. And as it turns out, I did end up marrying a, another local person, which definitely pleased my then partners because it meant I was going to be staying. So I, I would certainly echo that challenge when we've had single veterinarians, whether they've been men or women, for them to reach that work-life balance that we all yeah, want yeah. for our young people. Um, it, it can be hard to, you know, to have age mates to socialize with for sure. So that, that is a challenge, but and Alan made some good points about 
you know, women in large animal practice, having grown up on a dairy farm, it really never occurred to me that it would be an issue. But it's, and I was fortunate to have joined a practice that had other large animal women veterinarians. And that certainly had prepared our farmers for women being on the farm. So I personally really have never run into any significant issue. But it's, I think if anything, it's as much that um, a large animal veterinarian be able to truly understand agriculture and what our food production clients need from us as veterinarians. I've heard just as much criticism from farmers for new graduates who couldn't really talk the talk, walk the walk, as whether or not they were men or women. They, they want veterinarians to understand their industry, to understand their challenges and their needs. So it's been probably, for in our practice anyway, less about gender as just understanding and expertise for our ag sector. So I'm hearing a couple of things. One, if you are not partnered, you either need to bring someone with you (laughs) or you need to go to a different rural community (laughs) where you'll be like the new hot thing (laughs) when you get there, right? So, So I'm hearing that at least in terms of kind of finding life partners or companionship or, as you mentioned, just kind of age peers, you know, companion peers that you might need to kind of think about that in terms of of rural practice and kind of what kind of community you're looking for. I want to talk a little bit about the the economics of rural practice. And, and Andy, you mentioned this earlier in terms of folks wanting to go to rural areas to practice, but those practice not practices maybe not being able to offer the salaries that folks need to be able to to service their debt and and live. You mentioned that earlier, but I, I know that Gil said that he was doing some stuff with uh, AVMA's econ division. Gil, any comments on that? Yeah, I think it's, there's, there's a huge, a lot of opportunities sort of in this sort of increasingly technical world that the rural veterinarian can tap into to identify additional revenue streams to sort of help keep them economically sound and their business viable and things like that. You know, we, we, we're sort of entering an age where sort of telemedicine, when used appropriately, allows, you know, the veterinarian to practice outside of the walls of their practice and be in communication and even charge for those communications of clients that might be hundreds of miles away, but they still do have a viable BCPR. So really allowing that vet to be involved, you know, at the decision level without, um, you know, actually being there in person. So, you know, using technology, I think, in a lot of ways is something that the veterinarian can uh, demonstrate their value. You know, a lot of these old-time farmers have been doing things, you know, for 50 years, just like their grandfather did, and might not necessarily be aware of some of the, you know, the the new technology and breeding and reproduction and and the benefits that those could bring. So, being able to communicate that message to you know the value of investing in in you know sort of you know high quality genetics or different technologies to help improve feed efficiency or things like that. And it really comes down to the veterinarian to help to be able to describe that and understand that and to be able to sell it really uh, to, the, to the producer to, to demonstrate that, it, that, you know, that this is something that can help grow your business and, and in turn will help support the veterinarian as, as well. The other point I'll add, you know, in vet school, you know, we're all exposed to sort of the, sort of the, the latest and greatest technology or technique that, that is used to address a certain medical condition or surgery or things like that, you know, it might be the best thing out there, but it might also be the most expensive treatment. And I think it's important that veterinarians understand that, you know, there's one, one problem might have multiple solutions that might have different, you know, costs associated with it. And that's not to say you need to compromise, you know, the quality of care, but understanding that, you know, there might be different avenues that you can work to, you know, be, still be able to sort of bring in some income, treat the animal, uh, it might be the, not be the most ideal thing, but it's still, you know, ethically appropriate, scientifically sound technique that can be used to address a problem. So emphasizing that, I think, is important as well in uh, veterinary education. So, Andy, how are you coaching students as they kind of are getting ready to graduate Washington State University interested in rural practice? What do you tell them? How do you how do you mentor them? How do you guide them as they're especially as they're job hunting? Well, okay, and the, that's a that's a huge broad subject, I guess. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> what specifically? Just a couple of points. So, what, what so what, what's the number one question maybe that you get from a graduating senior who's looking to go into this particular practice area and is coming to you for a bit of a bit of guidance and wisdom? Okay. Osage uh, one. Well, <laughs> probably the the two biggest things I tell them 
at least as far as checking out practices and the area is to definitely do working interviews. I, I did lots of working interviews when I was first out and they were wonderful. You can really see what different different types of practices and different areas are like, you know, as far as the clients go, but as far as the, how the hospitals work. And so I tell them as much as possible, if they can get working interviews to go and work in the clinic for a day or two days, if they can, and just get to know everybody there, you'll get a better feel than just going and talking, you know, with the future uh, employer. Um, the other thing is to look at their books and see what they really do as far as as far as what type of clientele they see. I, you know, I I remember going out and being told that the practices I was looking at were 50, 50, 50 percent large, 50 percent small, you know, and not looking at their books and then finding out later it was 90 percent small, 10 percent large. And, you know, it felt like 50 percent to them, maybe. But and luckily, the you know, that uh, employer allowed me to do all the large animal stuff I wanted to do. But, you know, making sure that, you know, those things are, are really what they say. And, and then just spending some time in that community, you know, getting to getting to know the people there and, and seeing if it's, if it's something that will fit them. I, you know, those are important things, at least for that. Sure. Um, uh, there's, hopefully, there's many other things I... <laughs> Other well, I'm guessing that. it probably feels like 50% if you're kind of getting up at two o'clock in the morning. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it can. Yeah. <laughs> as, you're, as you get older and your joints get achier, the, the, you know, some of those times feel like 100% of the time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Those percentages start changing pretty yeah, quickly. <laughs> so, Stacey, what do you, what do you tell, what do you tell seniors who are, are looking to enter this particular practice area or even kind of maybe coming to interview um, at your practice? So to balance, you know, there's always salary conversation and starting salary opportunity to increase income potential over time as they hone their skill set is an important conversation to have and helping students understand that they can really have a lot of control over that and they're within their own career. And just like Gil alluded to, there's so many creative ways that they can find for themselves marketable skills and that's something to be encouraged. But also helping them understand that your cost of living in rural communities is going to be vastly different than in a lot of suburban and urban areas. So I am now an own, one of the owning partners, so I'm involved pretty intimately with hiring and have all these conversations with prospective associates. And we really don't shy away from economic conversations because that's important that students understand what they're going to be making, what they what their costs are going to be in a given community. And so the trade-offs may be that their costs are actually going to be lower than in some areas. But at the same time, we know we have to be prepared to offer competitive salaries to our new graduates because we're all competing for the same quality candidates. So it has we have certainly kept pace with our starting offers in order to get what we feel are the best of the best. And that is just a reality for private practitioners looking to hire. So I'm going to move into the last couple of questions as we start to wind down the show. So I'm kind of curious. So it, it sounds like you get to do everything, which is really exciting. Sounds a little exhausting too, but it sounds really exciting. But what are those maybe non-clinical skills? And I sometimes I hate to distinguish between kind of, you know, clinical and non-clinical because I think, you know, as a social scientist, it's all kind of clinical, right? But, but what are some of those non-clinical, non-technical skills that you all think are really needed to come and be successful in rural practice? Stacey, what are you looking for when you're when you're interviewing? First and foremost, we are looking at communication skills and personality. We believe we can train to hone technical skills. All, all candidates we've ever met come out with a certain amount of technical skills that are a great starting point, and we can work with them and mentor them to improve those. But communication skills, the ability to relate to individuals because every single animal that we touch, whether it's on the farm or in the clinic, is going to be attached to a human being. And the ability to communicate at whatever level that client needs the communication to be in order to understand the services we are providing has got to be a, a priority skill set. 
Yeah, I would just second that. I think communication is paramount, and you know, really in, in almost any area of veterinary medicine, whether it be small animal, large animal, food animal, you're, you're talking with with people that are invested in. You know, they love their animals, and they might also at the same time have limited limited financial resources, but you know, they, they nevertheless care deeply about their animals, and the veterinarian needs to be able to show empathy and be able to talk clients. Mm-hmm challenging and difficult situations. So that, that's, that's usually important. And it takes practice. For sure. Yeah, I'd, I'd say that communication skills are big. They are really big here at WSU at, at training those things and, and just watching students, the students that have very good communication skills are very successful, you know, no matter what they do. You know, other things that we stress are consulting skills, which are something that you just don't come out of vet school being able to do. But at least if they're thinking about it during their last few years of veterinary school of, of how they can help out some of these different ag animal producers and in, in consulting for and not just fire engine medicine, but, you know, more of the, the herd based consulting, you know, with nutrition and, and reproduction and many different different areas you know, the other thing that we work on a lot here, but we it's partly due to our very, very large farms that we work with, is employee training. Mm. We And that's not some, a skill that they expect to learn, but we teach them that they have to. They have to teach. They're going on to these large 5,000 head dairies and, and they're training the employees on how to do this, the things that they need to do to keep the calves you know, sure. healthy and, you know, milk quality. There's, there's so much uh, employee training that they will be doing. So that's a, a new different skill set that we're really working on that I don't think has been in traditional medicine or veterinary medicine. But, you know, those are things that at least we try to get them started so that they can have a, a foundation to build off of and go from there. So, and, and also learning how to charge for those things. Um, <laughs> You know, a, a lot of a lot of the places that they go to, especially dairy practice, they have those already set up. But you get to a lot of uh, cow-calf operation practices that, you know, work with huge um, cow-calf operations in, in rural areas. They, they really have not figured out how to charge for a lot of the consulting that they do. And so it's trying to teach them how they can justify... Um, what they're doing and get justified getting paid for that. So, Great. yeah. Great. Thank you. Yeah. And I know that there are also some, some of our member institutions within AAVMC that are also emphasizing the need to learn Spanish as well to improve, you know, communication skills, not just kind of improving the quality of communication, but actually bridging, you know, language gaps and and those types of things so that you can actually do some of that successful employee training on the ground at some of these sites. It's really important. Gil, I know that there's a program that you all have at Lincoln Memorial specifically around kind of rural practice. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Uh, so, yeah, it's still, well, it, it's basically a fourth year rotation that we've allowed or we, we've developed. And it's it's constantly being added to and refined. We were offered it this past year or our, 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 our previous fourth years that graduated last year. We'll be offering it again this spring. Basically, it's an elective rotation that's web-based. So it allows our fourth-year students, wherever they are in their rotation schedule, to kind of tune in for a couple hours uh, throughout the week. And basically, it just sort of brings together some experts in you know, veterinary economics, rural practice. We interview rural practitioners, basically providing some additional resources, mentorship, just some ideas and, and, and things that students can relate to, and just sort of get some extra practice and say, you know, evaluating you know, a, a practice for financial stability, um, how to stock a vet truck. You know, just just some sort of stuff that we think is, is, is critically important for vets to be able to understand and know while they're out in practice. And as I said, it's still in development. I'd like to expand it further and potentially offer it, you know, through other schools in partnership with other schools. Um, but I think it's, it's critically important to really, you know, identify those students that want to get out there and do the practice in the rural areas and um, just having some extra resources to support, to support them. Because as we've described in this, this session here, you know, there's a lot of challenges and it does take a unique person with a 
specific skill set to be able to do that and be successful. Mm-hmm. So that, that's that's the point of that. As I said, it's still in development, but I think there's a lot of potential for it to grow beyond what's, what it currently is now. Great. Thank you. So last question, and I'm going to tailor this a little bit just because of some students that I met this past weekend. I was uh, at the North Carolina VMA meeting and I met some high school students who were kind of shadowing vets at their state VMA meeting. And I was shocked and pleasantly surprised that they were listening to the podcast. I'm like, where did you come from? But what would you tell some of those high school students who are, you know, maybe interested in this particular area. So we've talked about vet students and certainly um, fourth years and, and new grads, but let's let's kind of maybe give some some sage advice to the youngsters. Any words of wisdom? <laughs> I think getting as much exposure and experience to all that veterinary medicine has to offer. I was um, I was a pretty traditional vet student. I, having been on a farm, I wanted to go back into mixed rural practice. But once I got to vet school, I was really amazed at the career opportunities that DBMs can have available to them, like working for pet food companies, working for and you know the whole nutrition sector. Um, and all of the pharmaceutical companies that employed technical service veterinarians and such. So when I talk to high schoolers, I, I certainly encourage them to spend time in our practice because they really should know the this is something they want to pursue, but also to broaden their interests a bit to keep in mind that there's ways they can serve the veterinary profession and be able to do some pretty cool things in, in other areas. Um, And I also encourage them to work hard and get good grades because it's still a very competitive uh, process to get into the right um, undergraduate programs that will set them up for veterinary school. And that's probably not going to change anytime in the near future. Andy, what would you tell the youngsters? Well, I would concur with the uh, uh, be a good student, learn how to be a good student. That's probably the biggest thing I I would tell them is, is learn now how to study and and you know do well because a lot of those kids show a lot of interest. I, I, pretty much every place I went to, if there was a kid between junior high and high school, they would or even grade school, they would come up to me and say, "I've always wanted to be a vet," or their parents would say, "I always want to be a vet." So, and a lot of them don't become vets, and I think a lot of it is because they get weeded out in the educational process but so yeah learn how to be a good student um also you know what what stacy said about working for a lot of different people and getting all those experiences i worked for i think 13 different veterinarians when i was prior to going to vet school and what it taught me is is that there's some really grumpy vets out there that you know if i listened to their advice i would have never gone to vet school but then there was also some really happy vets and I associated myself more with those vets and said, yeah, my personality is a little more like those and they're always happy. They're, you know, they're having a great time and they, they love this profession. And so making sure that they work with a bunch of different people and not just, just the grumpy ones because the grumpy ones will, you know, deter them. <laughs> Unless they're a grumpy personality, then maybe they should get out. Well, <laughs> can, but so I, yeah, I think, and really learning, just like Stacy said, learning that there are so many opportunities. There's not just, there's not just, you know, small animal, large animal, mixed animal. There's, there's opportunities in every direction. And, you know, I think our veterinary students get surprised by it when they get here and they're like, oh, shoot, I've got so many choices. Now what do I do? <laughs> um, so, yeah, just making sure that they they know that um, as well. But as far as the uh, getting them to do or not getting them to do, but um, encouraging them to the rural thing, I, I think, you know, just all the 4-H, you know, things that they do and and working with those vets and and really seeing what kind of a difference they make for the different places they work for and and how um, uh, gratifying it is for those people. So yeah, that would be yeah my advice. They would have stopped listening to me a long time ago. But. 
<laughs> find a happy vet. That's <laughs> unless you're intrinsically a grumpy person. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Last but certainly not least, Gil, what advice would you give to those young upstarts that are in high school? Sure. So, I mean, as has been mentioned before, getting into vet school, first of all, is highly competitive. And I think the American vet, vet School certainly recognize the importance of rural veterinary medicine, large animal medicine in general, uh, the public health implications of that. So I think as a, as a high school student, if you can get involved with things like 4-H or you know, local community health projects or things like that to sort of be able to demonstrate some experience and knowledge of that side of the profession, it can really help set you aside in your application and sort of um, you know, help you stand out when you, when you are applying. Because as, as has been said, it's very competitive. And if you know, a lot of students just have, you know, small animal experience when they're when they're applying to vet school. If you if you've got a broad array of experiences, especially in the sort of knowledge of the the challenges and opportunities that exist in rural medicine, um, I think that's definitely a, a plus on your application. Um, and when you're applying, you know, you, you ought to be able to you, you want to take everything you can get because it it is it is very competitive. So I think, you know, and obviously you know do well and do well in school, get good grades because that that is a huge um, threshold that'll help people need to be able to accomplish to be, you know, even be considered, but to really set you apart, I think having some those diverse experiences is, is hugely important. Great. Well, thank you. Any parting words before we wrap up? Thanks for having us. This has been <laughs> fun. Thank you. <laughs> Well, thank you. Thank you for thank you for each taking some time out of your day to talk about rural practice. This has been another great episode of Diversity and Inclusion on Air. You can find back episodes of the show on our SoundCloud channel or your favorite podcast app. They are all archived there. You can also find more information about the show on our Facebook page, AAVMC's Diversity and Inclusion on Air. So again, to my guests, thank you so very much. I'm glad that there were no on-call kind of moments where you had to go pull calves or do whatever it is that you all do out there in the field. I really appreciate your taking the time. And we look forward to talking more about the various types of practice within veterinary medicine on future episodes. Thank you so much. Thank you. Good to be here. 